What is happiness? How do you know you have or are experiencing happiness? I'm just going to pause just for a moment, just wanting you just to think about it and think about what comes to mind. I've given the title to my sermon, In Pursuit of Happiness. Now, I mentioned the theme to my wife, and her immediate reaction was laughter, and then a questioning tone of, surely you know what happiness is, you've married me. (laughs) I've been thinking about this question lately myself, And what I've come up with is this, to experience firsthand for yourself love, joy, and peace. And for that, not to depend on your circumstance. So to experience those, it's a good idea to know the source of those things, love, peace, and joy. So ask yourself, what is that source? So as a Christian, we're taught that the source of those is Jesus. And so our pursuit of life, our natural endeavour, is to pursue him, which is the source. Uh, But the problem is, I think, we often lose our way somewhere along the line and perhaps settle for something a little bit more watered down. Or we get knocked around by life and we get disillusioned that that could be our experience, or at least not in any way that's impactful. Uh, You may have thought that tangible joy is not something that's, you know, for a regular thing. It's just for a fleeting moment, for rare occasions. Or maybe you think it's only something that you really experience when you're in heaven with him. Or maybe you just assume that your personality type is just not wired like that to experience these. So as I go along with the Lord, the more and more I'm convinced I am that love, joy and peace are for all of us now and in increasing measure before we get to heaven. And my hope with this sermon is that I can show you what I've come to know of as the love of my Father. Maybe to stoke a little bit more desire for you to pursue him more. And for you to recognise that his desire is for you to experience his love, his joy, his peace for yourself. So emotions in the life of a Christian, it's had a bad press, negative press, for as long as I can remember. Uh, It's often taught that we're not meant to trust our emotions or feelings. Maybe even go as far as to say, to the flesh. And the implication that it's your carnal side 
and is potentially even opposite to your spirit man. But ask yourself, what's your immediate response to what I've just said? Consider the title of my sermon again, In Pursuit of Happiness. Have you had red warnings, lights going off on your head? Uh, Has it been a bit like, Christian, where are you going with this thought? Tread carefully, otherwise you'll run the risk, run the danger of getting worldly with your thinking. And yet, time and time again, we see in the scriptures the words love, joy and peace, compassion and a bunch of other emotive words. Grounding this in scripture, I'm going to give you a smattering. Uh, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. John 15, 11. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That's Matthew 9, 36. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16. What are these words except for an expression of something that is experiential? I would say these words are robbed of their meaning and vitality if they're not experienced. How can you say you're peaceful if your anxiety is through the roof? How can you say you're joyful if all you've known is depression, loneliness and despair? The words joy describes an experience that you have to feel in your emotions. Otherwise, it's robbed of all its meaning. Perhaps the words love, joy, peace are too entrenched in the tenets of our Christian faith to think of them afresh. Maybe they have already well-defined boundaries in our thinking to be able to consider them afresh or in a new light. So I just want to step back for a moment and just consider some other words that are a little bit less contentious, a little less connotations, perhaps is the right word. Think of the word flavour for a moment. Right now, mull it over. What comes to mind? Now ask yourself, how can you have flavour without taste? I would suggest you can't know it, this word flavour for yourself, unless you've experienced the sense of taste. Think of the word phrase physical pain. Ask yourself, how can you know physical pain without the sensation of physical hurt? Can you honestly say you're, you've really delighted in something 
if it hasn't provoked some emotive, emotional, positive response that has made you smile, either inwardly or outwardly. Now, it's pretty clear that these words themselves only derive their essential meaning from an experience of a sense or emotion. And it's the same with joy, love, peace. They are not some abstract concept than to be experienced in your emotions. And because of the person of the Holy Spirit living within us, they can be experienced in a way that's not dependent on our circumstance. So back to the scriptures. Uh, let me read for you John 7, 37 to 38. I'm going to read from the King James Version because there's a particular word I want to pull out. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, the Hebrew view of the word belly represented the seat of your emotions or your deepest innermost parts. The scripture here implies that the person of the Holy Spirit living within you will touch and arrest your deepest emotions and needs. We're made in his image, and he has emotions. Now, as the scripture says, we know that we're being transformed from glory to glory. Therefore, it stands to reason that he intends for us to experience his emotions, his heart. Uh, Just a little bit of story from my past, which amuses me now. So I always looked at Christian brothers and sisters who would give a story of how good our Lord is. Invariably, the stories would have a common theme where that particular individual or group of people are trying to help someone or a group of people out. Often they would recount a particular struggle where it looked impossible, but that God managed to break through and provide for the people that they were trying to help out. I would finish by praising the Lord with gusto. And to me, the me at the time would always struggle with this. Yeah, I could see that God is good, but it was always from a sense of detachment. And I could never see how they were able to say it with such enthusiasm. It was like they were able to praise God as if they were on the receiving end of God's blessing and provision. Me, I just couldn't help bring myself to praise a God that would step in probably at the last moment when I'd done all the hard work. And then I got it. Honestly, I can't tell you when my outlook changed, but it was one of those all things become new kind of moment. Suddenly I realised that in those moments where we see God breaking through for others, 
when things seem impossible, I get to experience firsthand the profound goodness of the one who loves me at work. I'm partnering with him in those moments and I get to feel the vitality and tangible outward working of the God who is love, demonstrating that love for his creation. I get to experience this for myself in those moments and I can feel a small part of the joy that he's experienced in those, in those moments of breakthrough where his will be done on earth as it is already in heaven. Uh, what I've found to experience him in a tangible way, uh, to let him touch our deepest emotions, is, is unlikely going ha- to happen unless we do something about it. There has to be active participation from us. Uh, there's so many scriptures that show that's the case. And so just going to sample a few of those. Matthew 11:12, Come to me, all those who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Hebrews 4.11, let us labour, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall according to the same example of unbelief. <clears throat> so I think it kind of makes sense, really, if you think about it. He designed us to be completely dependent on him. And that's fulfilled when we have a relationship with him where we can know him intimately and where we open up to him all that we are. Where we're including him in everything we do and we learn to no longer rely on ourselves but on him. So the question is, how do you participate to build that intimacy and dependency on him? I think that's going to look different for different people. Uh, but I want to give a, just dig into that a little bit and give it a little bit more, make it a little bit more concrete from what it looks like for me to participate. Uh, so to take the passage that we've just read today. Let us labour, therefore, to enter into his rest. <clears throat> so peace, that isn't something that comes naturally for me. Uh, when growing up, I've always felt a sense of threat of either being bullying, bullied, or of physical harm. That's still my tendency now. Fear of standing in front of people has largely shaped my life for as long as I can remember, until very recently. Performance-related anxiety at work was my constant companion throughout my career. I'm feeling that I'm a little boy who wants to run away from any of life's challenge. That seems to be my default. And yet now I do experience peace to a large degree most days. When I'm diligent enough to structure my day so that I get up in the morning to be on my own with the one who loves me 
in those moments, the turmoil that wants to be my portion and experience is diffused. I experience this. It's not just a head knowledge. Where I can pour out my struggles and express and declare my need for him, where I can be in those moments with him, the turmoil that wants to be my portion and experience is diffused. I experience this, it's not just a head knowledge. Often I experience this physically, uh, not even notice that I'd been holding my breath. My breathing was erratic when the peace that I'm held by him starts to infuse my mind. I can experience a physical sigh of relief and a deep exhale of the breath that I didn't realise I'd been holding. He really has touched my emotions and calmed the waves in those moments. I have experienced his reality and that's now become mine, at least in those moments that I'm quite alone with him. Oftentimes I feel heaviness and yet an hour or so or less with him can change my entire outlook and mood. In that place where I pour out my struggles, I get to feel the one who loves me and cares for me, and then I can switch my focus away from the struggles and start to feel his love for me. Where gratefulness and adoration are allowed to well up inside, more often than not, that heaviness is swapped out for a joyful, bubbly sense of life is good. In those moments, it's often a tangible breaking off of something else that's inside of me that intrinsically knows this heaviness is not meant to be my portion. But I almost always have to do something about it. I have to enter into his rest. I have to work at it. For me, that means structuring my day so I go to bed early, so I can get up early. Uh, honestly, I find that frustrating. If I had it my way, I'd want to be that man who... ...back for, to him, who is my source and my life. After 40 years... I'm finally convinced that the very thing that makes me weak from the world's perspective is potentially my greatest asset. Because when I'm weak, he can show forth his strength through me. I'm becoming more and more convinced that in addition to the labouring in the practical, like the example I've just given, we got to pray. And we got to pray continually. It's a couple of prayers that I think are essential. 
uh, the prayers that Paul was super keen on getting across to the Ephesians. But just before we get to those, I just want to give another simple prayer that I find particularly useful. Uh, Maybe you want to practice this with me now. So close your eyes and say quietly to yourself, Jesus, would you be the peace and joy I need right now to feel? For me, it's just becoming part of my practising his presence throughout my day. Paul's prayers. So I like to pray these ones in the morning pretty soon after I get up. Let's look at those. So Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. I just realised I didn't give any overhead projectors on all of these, so apologies. My first time. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That same love that inspired the Father to give his only son, the son he loved for eternity with an unfathomable love, even though he knew ahead of time billions would reject him, even for the likes of Hitler. That love is what Paul is praying that you and I should grasp. Think about it for the moment. How can we know and start to demonstrate that level of love so as to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God without actually experiencing it? It's why Paul is saying that it surpasses head knowledge. You've got to experience it. You've got to feel it. Paul is praying for these people as it is possible that they can, that, that this can be their experience just as like it has been for him. That same love that he's experienced and known for himself that caused him to be compelled to do the things that he did can be theirs also. Yet this word love, such a common word, that I think it's a good idea to remind ourselves the definition in the Bible. Um, So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8. Now I'm going to read, so if you're looking back in your scripture, I'm going to read a different translation to the one that you've probably got. So it's going to be from the the New Living Translation, and then I'm going to make it personal to you. So can you close your eyes for a moment and listen to the words and fill them for yourself? Your love is patient and kind. You're never
Never envious or boastful or proud or rude. You never demand your own way. You're never irritable with me. And you keep no record of my wrongs. You never give up on me. You're always faithful to me. Always hopeful for me. And your love endures through every circumstance I have and will face. And yet words, however eloquent they are, are still just words that need to be experienced. I've had a small taste of that love 20 years ago when he turned my world upside down and he set me free from depression overnight. So this day it's left an indelible mark on me and a deposit that has remained fresh to this very day. But I struggle to communicate with words that someone who maybe hasn't experienced this love can get hold of. And yet we're still left with just words. But maybe if you can hear this love described from a man who experienced it for himself firsthand, maybe, just maybe, you can start catching hold of a sense of this essence for yourself. When I first experienced the flavour of this love 20 years ago, I happened to hear a testimony of a guy who said he'd died and gone to heaven. I don't have a frame of reference for that. And so my default reaction is, did he really go to heaven? Or it seems a bit fanciful to me. And yet I heard this man's description of what love is and the way he said it, the way he described it, and everything within me screamed, yes. <laughs> That's it. That's the love I've just tasted uh, from Paul. So Ephesians 1, 17 to 23. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his, in his holy people and his incomparable great love for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So those two prayers uh, that Paul, like I say, was so keen on getting the Ephesians to pray. He said, pray, keep asking. I keep asking. 
that you would experience this. So I'd encourage you just to take those two away with you and make them your own. And as you start to feel the security and the assurance that you are held by him, that he will see you through to heaven when you realise the riches you have in him or that you are his inheritance because he esteems you that much. Because he esteems you that much. When you realise the same potential power that raised Christ is within you, your appreciation and gratitude and love for him will draw you in for more. And then, in that secret place where you can pour out your heart to him and he can lavish you with his love, he's going to perform surgery on your hearts and graft in his own. Surgery that takes time, where he increases your capacity to know his love and for your very being to know the heights of his great worth. And gradually, you become more and more like Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. As you do, you'll start to experience his heart for others. And your deepest emotions and innermost parts will gradually align with Jesus. Just as he declared, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water.